0: Hi friends, I'm Amy Julia Becker, and this is Love is Stronger Than Fear, a podcast about pursuing hope and healing in the midst of social division. In this season, we're talking about my book, White Picket Fences, and today's episode takes a look at the themes of Chapter 11, which is called Possibilities. Possibilities. My guest today is Nicole Fulgum. Nicole has been a champion of education reform for many years now, and she approaches the problems of inequity in education here in America as a Black Christian woman with personal experiences and an understanding of policy, and those aspects of who she is all combine to offer so much insight into what is needed in our schools today. I love the way Nicole underlines the importance of expectations when it comes to our kids and our schools, and the importance of community engagement, and the importance of believing in our children, and the importance of policy change. And it's this insistence on all of these things and the ways that we can be involved in making our schools better for all kids that make me really excited for you to meet her today. All right. Well, my guest today is Nicole Fulgham, founder and president of the Expectations Project, which I'm going to have her tell you all about. But first, I just want to say, Nicole, welcome. Thank you so much. I appreciate you inviting me.
1: Look forward to the conversation.
0: Well, me too. I have followed your work for a long time, many, many years, but I am sure that there are listeners who don't know who you are, what you do, um, and who will be interested, especially at this moment, I think, uh, having some information as well as guidance and how to think about and participate in Education, public education in the United States will be really helpful. So, I'd love to just start by asking you to tell us a little bit about yourself and how you
1: came to found the Expectations Project and what it is. Sure, sure, happy to. Um, so, I grew up in Detroit, Michigan, in in the city, in what I would probably call a working class neighborhood. So, we had a few lower middle class families, working class folks, and definitely a fair amount of um, people who lived in poverty. And so I saw education inequality kind of outside my front door um, Mm -hmm. every day growing up. My parents um, were a working class family, but were able to um, really work hard and sacrifice a lot of things to send my brother and I to uh, schools outside of our neighborhood, starting from preschool. Uh, My mother majored in early childhood education (laughs) in college, so (laughs) she definitely knew what she was looking for um, for us and wrestled with whether or not to send us to our neighborhood public schools and ultimately um, decided to send us to um, an urban Lutheran school, Hmm. which um, were schools that, you know, as neighborhoods like Detroit became increasingly um, African-American, a lot of private schools fled and these schools stayed. And so they were like a kind of the next step up from the neighborhood public schools in terms of, honestly, quality so they were good, but they weren't, you know, sort of this like super like Tony, you know, right. Expensive, private suburban school, but it was um, arguably safer. Um, and there was something a bit more that we got, um, which was a huge sacrifice for my parents to do that. And I am forever grateful, mm. um, but sad that they had to make that choice. Right. Anyway. So by the time I got to high school, I went to, I got accepted into an exam public high school in Detroit called Renaissance high school.
0: Mm-hmm. And
1: I saw the difference between what I was getting from my friends on my block in K through eight, but I definitely saw the difference in high school. I had been prepared both by my school, but also my parents to be able to get into this very competitive public high school in Detroit. And from day one, they were talking to us about, you know, SAT prep and you know taking AP classes. They assumed we were all going to college because we were quote unquote best of the best of black kids in Detroit. Mm. And as an adult, ninety-nine percent percent of us went on to college and, you know, we're all, you know, still friends on Facebook because I'm old um, <laughs> today and people are, you know, attorneys and physicians and, you know, running engineering firms and sort of this amazing success rate of mostly black kids from Detroit, all mm. of them, definitely not wealthy, but the difference is all of my friends who didn't get into that high school, which was most <laughs> of the kids on my block, Went to the neighborhood school, which had no AP classes at the time. No one talked to my friends about college um, the entire time they were in high school. And so about half of them dropped out. Um, My brother and I are two of three kids in our neighborhood that we know of that went on to a four-year college. And the crazy thing is that they were just as smart as I was. I am convinced. Smart, ready, curious, had unlimited potential. Central, but we were going to two very different school systems within Detroit public schools. So that really changed kind of the way I looked at the world um, early on. The other piece of information, this is a lot of background about how I got here, but I, I think yeah. it's important to hear people's stories. And so indulge me, if you will. Absolutely. But, That's what I wanted. I wanted. Yeah. I mean, at the same time, I was attending um, a, ch- a church with my, my family. It's, uh, an AME church, African Methodist Episcopal church. Which has a rich tradition um, in activism and sort of engaging in civil rights issues, you know since its founding, splitting off from the Methodist Church that wouldn't allow um, I guess we were you know right after slavery wouldn't allow black people to sit in the same pews as mm-hmm. the other Methodists who were white. And so this church began. And so growing up, I saw um, this very large, influential church repeatedly hold elected officials accountable to the things they said they were going to do when they kind of came through the congregation to shake hands and, you know, wink, wink, we'd like your vote kind of thing. The pastor was like, absolutely. Yeah, come on through. And they would have them back in six months in front of the entire congregation asking them. And so you said you were going to do these three things. You haven't done them yet. Mm when are you going to do them? And they like consistently called out the leadership in the city, black, white, purple, it didn't matter. They were like, you said you were going to do it and you didn't do it. So we're going to now start a protest or we're going to call your office. We're going to bring you back in front of this church that you promised these things to. And for me, I see that as an extension of my faith, like Mm -hmm. my faith, pushes me because it was always on the issues of like justice and equity and serving those who had the least. So those two experiences, the school inequality and growing up in a church that really put that in practice, really led me to the the path that I'm on today after, you know, being a public school teacher for a few years, getting my PhD in education policy, because I was trying to figure out how do you change a system to make mm-hmm. it over thousands of kids. And and over the years, I just wanted to, to really marry these two ideas of what would it look like to have people of faith um, incredibly focused from their faith lens, and I'm a Christian, from a biblical lens um, focused on of course, we have a system that is right now educating different groups of kids based on race and class to different outcomes. Mm -hmm. And as people of faith, like that shouldn't be because we assume all kids have potential. What would it look like to mobilize that group of faith motivated folks and to have them push their elected officials kind of en masse, right, to change the policies, the systems, the practices, and to demand that they fix this system Year after year after year, more equally reflects the potential of all of got kids. That's what I do with the Expectations Project.
0: Mm. Thank you so much for giving us that story. I want to add one more piece to it or ask you to speak to one more piece to it, which is your own experiences teaching in Compton, I believe, right out of mm-hmm. college. Is that right with Teach for America?
1: I did. Yes. I joined um, Teach for America um, right out of um, college and um, definitely learned a lot. I think my students, I'm not sure who taught who more, but (laughs) it's the way with first year teachers. Um, And um, I taught for a few years and taught fifth grade. And, you know, that was definitely one of those life-changing moments because it made me really put into practice all the things I said I believed, right? I said, well, you know, Growing up in Detroit, I know my friends are just as smart as I am. Like, why aren't we pushing them in the same way I'm getting pushed, right? Like, I believe as a Christian, like, God doesn't differentiate academic potential between black and brown or white and Asian or rich and poor kids. Like, Imago Day, right? (laughs) For us all. Um, but then, when you're on the side of the classroom to have to actually prove that to be the case, um, it changes your perspective. It didn't take away my firm belief in that. I just had to figure out how do we collectively get there. And, you know, it was really hard. Um, I was very fortunate to be placed at a school that had some veteran teachers who were, you know, at that time, you knew the age of my parents or, quite frankly, my grandparents, and took mm. the under their wing. And they were willing to let me kind of like, shadow them in the classroom, learn from them, pick their brain, cry with them. A lot of them were Christians. They prayed with me, right, outside of the classroom in a legal way. Yeah. Um, but this amazing community that um, they taught me how to engage and get to know my students' families. And so my families became partners in their kids' education. And I just was kind of naive enough to think, like, actually, um, we should be able to do this. And so we were able to be really honest with kids and families about where they were academically. And in in fact, like two thirds of my kids were reading at, you know, probably a second grade level or below um, in fifth grade. Some were functionally illiterate and same with math, really below grade level. And so I was honest with them, with their families, not in a blaming way, but just we've got work to do. And so people got on board. I got lots of volunteers from my church at the time, community members to help us do extra tutoring because my kids needed more time to catch Mm -hmm. up. But it it really was this amazing thing. I mean, I'm glossing over, you know, lots of like tears, prayers, you know, (laughs) mistakes, failures. But at the end of the year, my fifth graders um, on the standardized test had the most academic growth of any fifth grade class in Compton, Hmm. which for a brand new teacher is sort of crazy. And I don't say that to say like, oh, my gosh, I was like an amazing teacher because I, I probably wasn't right. I was just sort of like naive enough to like try a bunch of things. And I had the energy of, you know. I don't know, a gerbil, right? So I can (laughs) work like 80 hours a week. Things that in reality are just not sustainable to be a teacher that way for 30 years, it's not. Um, So I don't judge other teachers who aren't doing those things. Um, But it was this beautiful thing to see so many of my students and their families see, oh my gosh, I had students say, I didn't think I was smart until this year. Mm. And that is like what our role is supposed to be. And so for me, it's like, well, then how do we, it's part of why I left the classroom was, that's one classroom. How do we fix a system, right, that can allow more of that to happen, um, to support teachers differently, to support support schools and families differently, so we can unleash that God-given potential in every kid.
0: Yeah, I so resonate with that. One of the reasons I wanted to have you on the show is because I've been walking through during this podcast season, my book, White Picket Fences, and the chapter that we're kind of on is called Possibilities. And it's a chapter that I wrote about our daughter Penny and the possibilities that opened up for her uh, as a child with a disability within the school system. And I've just been so struck as I've watched her earlier this week, we had a um, PPT meeting for her and there's, you've got this team of people and I'm just so aware of how much they believe in her. They believe in her abilities and um, they certainly are going to make accommodations based on her needs and they're going to give her the support that she needs, but they really do believe in her. And it. In watching that and in watching the difference, honestly, she's had teachers before where in a dance class, for example, she's gone, had the same class, but different teachers. And one teacher will write me and say, Penny got tired after 20 minutes and she couldn't continue the class. Mm. And then I'll talk to the other teacher who's teaching the same lesson on another day. And, and she'll say, no, no, Penny has never gotten tired. And it really came down to you believe she can do it. <laughs> and so yeah. I, I yeah. just uh, in I read read your book um, in preparing for this uh, interview today which I'll just mention here for people who are interested called educating all God's children and I was struck by that same thing of just like what you just said about the student who's like I never believed I was smart like I never knew that and you believed that right you actually believed what you had said theoretically must be true about your neighborhood it's like okay I'm gonna actually live that out and so I wanted to ask you just to talk a little bit as I think about not just the you know kids with disabilities but other kids who are on the margins for other reasons and who are vulnerable, especially when it comes to education for other reasons. Uh, what do you think our like societal expectations are for those kids? And how do we begin to change the expectations, right? I'm thinking of the expectations project um and why you've even called it that
1: definitely that and that's exactly the reason because for me that was such a differentiator at that school, high mm-hmm. school that I attended. You know, honestly, like, I think we, if we dug deep down and sort of honestly in like the depths of our soul, and I say we as a society, we want to ask ourselves, do we truly think that every child can achieve, right? Mm -hmm. And when I say every, I mean every, like the child whose parents are incarcerated, the child who's homeless, the child who, you know just immigrated here and, you know, is six years old and has to learn English first, right? The child whose, you know, family is really struggling economically, who doesn't have, you know, the clean clothes that we, you know, sort of think yeah. that every child should have, whatever the thing is. I, I, I don't think we do. Um, and, and it's hard to acknowledge that as a country. Because it's this wonderful, like, sort of bumper sticker slogan, right? Like, all kids can achieve, like, everyone has potential. And that's that's great. But, like, we need to do the deep soul searching and say, like, it's okay to kind of acknowledge, like, I'm not sure that I believe that, right? Mm -hmm. And it's not surprising that we don't because we see so many messages reinforcing that, right? Like, we don't see messages reinforcing these, you know, superstar stories um, of kids with every, like, seeming... You know every possible disadvantage succeeding, they will seem like almost one in a million, right? And and for good reason, like it's harder, right? Like I don't think I mean I'm very clear that you know the child that I'm raising, you know, is going to have different advantages even than I did, right? Yeah. <laughs> as, a, as a youngster, and so like I'm ex- there's a there's an expectation people probably have of her, you know, race aside, she's African American, as am I. Um, but there, there's some assumptions, right. That she'll be able to achieve, but I'm just not sure that we deep down believe that about everybody. And the reason I'd say that is because if we did, we would be investing in kids differently in our country. Like we just would,
0: like we I totally agree. I am thinking of, um, I remember it was when Penny was really little that I read the line, um, the soft bigotry
1: of low expectations. Exactly. It's, and, which, which is like a punch in the gut, right? Yeah. Like it, it resonates. And, and that's the thing. Like I wrestled with that as a teacher and I came in with like, absolutely. But when you get in the thick of it, right. And you're like, oh my gosh, like I know. And I had students who had some, you know, they experienced trauma. Some of my students, you know, during the school year with family things that happened and you're like, wow, okay, so that just happened. And I'm asking you to focus on fractions on Monday morning. And I know it happened in your house over the weekend. Right. It's not that I, I still had to help them focus on fractions, right? Because that was long-term what they needed. Mm-hmm. But I also can, you know, do that and make sure that the family has the social services or counseling support they need, you know, through the school or through the county, right? Like both things can be true, but what we often do is, And not just because we're biased or like it's our own bigotry or prejudices. It's this, it's out of like sympathy that we can sort of fall into this like, oh my gosh, but I couldn't expect them to do that because Mm -hmm. they're so much. And it's like, get them the help they may need, but also like they still need to learn fractions because like that matters too. And like, who are we to say that they don't get the right to learn it? Um, but, But again, like at the end of the day, if we truly, believed that every kid would succeed, you wouldn't see, you go into schools now, you know, suburban and urban schools and just the facilities, you know, everything is so dramatically different. You you wouldn't see that type of inequality if we truly believed every kid can achieve. You just wouldn't.
0: Yeah, and again, my like little, you know, petri dish has been my own household as far as um watching the same be true when it comes to our daughter because there again can be low expectations and high expectations and she's got similar to what you described in terms of your kids, like a ton of social support from her family and community that plenty of kids don't have, but there is still that sense of If our attitude towards her is that we believe in her, certainly in terms of her potential to learn, but also her potential to contribute, because I think that's part of it, too, is like, what if we assume that she is someone who is going to give to our society and we don't know exactly how but what if we assumed that about every kid all the kids that you described as well who i think we often assume are going to just take from our society which is absolutely not true and does not honor the image of god in them whatsoever and i wanted to ask you about you have written about like a history of how christians have been involved in educational you know Initiatives and reform in the past. So I'd love for you, if you can, just to sketch a little bit of what the history is, but then also talk about the contemporary moment. Are churches, are Christians involved in public education reform, and why or why not? So past and present. Could you just speak to that a bit?
1: Sure. Yeah. I mean, so so many of the the public schools or the beginning of schools in America were largely um, Protestants, um, Protestant communities that were founding them. There was there was a, a deep belief that you know, educating young people, particularly a lot of these um, Protestant communities reached out to immigrants, right? That that yeah. was an important part of their calling. Um, now, granted, they were doing it um, because they wanted to make sure people knew Jesus, right? Like that was a main thrust of it. Like oftentimes the educational texts were, you know, religious documents. Um, so we mm-hmm. can we can discuss that at some other point. But there was a also a belief that people needed to be literate and contributing members of society, which that part I definitely, um, you know, Adhere to that. Um, Over time, that lessened, right? um, As schools became like truly public, and then there was the massive debate over prayer in schools, etc. The place where I would say, like, the conservative Christian white conservative Christians really fell down on this promise was when schools were being uh, desegregated in Mm the 1960s, and that is this really, really disturbing moment for a lot of, of of more conservative white denominations that started all of these, you know, quote unquote, Christian academies. And I say quote unquote, because like the root was pretty wicked. (laughs) Why many of them were started? I'm sure they talked about Jesus, but um, the root was, was, was pretty foul. Um, Starting these um, all white Christian academies to ensure that their white children didn't have to go to school with black and Brown kids. And so that is, you know, one of those parts of our history that we don't like to talk about as much, but it's part of our story. It also leads to why, We've had, you know, in some communities resistance when churches now, right, want to get involved. This is changing a bit, I would say, but there are communities that remember that history and so are more skeptical, right, of, of Christians wanting to get involved. Mm. I also think, as I wrote in the, in the book there, in some communities, Christians are known more for getting involved in public schools to push sort of religious issues And to be sort of countercultural, whether it's, you know, protests and removal of prayer in schools or questions about, you know, curriculum dealing with sexuality issues or whatnot. And, you know, my take is if that's your cause, like by all means, like champion your cause. I think the sad part is that we are often known more for that in connection to schools than Mm -hmm. being a partner that wants to come in and say, oh my gosh, kids are struggling. Like families are struggling. How do we support this school? I would say the good news is like that tide has turned, I would say, in a lot of communities in the last you know ten or fifteen years, so we do see so many more congregations that are taking on trying to develop really honest, symbiotic partnerships with public schools and just coming in and saying, hey, we want to be helpful, what do you need? Which is always the best way to be a partner in any context um, from my experience, which has been exciting. So I think where, we're, where we are still growing is that last step of how do we sort of over time, elim- as I, I like to say, eliminate the need, the need for every church to need to tutor kids to get them ready for kindergarten because there's no preschool in our community that's affordable for families to saying like, actually, if we would organize, advocate, and speak truth to power to get the affordable quality preschool for everybody, like long-term that's gonna impact thousands of kids instead of the 20 kids we're tutoring, Mm -hmm. right? Thousands of kids will then have what they need to be ready for um, kindergarten. We can maybe still tutor too to like make it even better, but it's the systemic like change the system, the policies, the practices, The funding mechanisms, that's the place where I think we are on the cutting edge um, and can step more into that space. And the last thing I'll say is when Christians en masse, and I say this with broad strokes, caveat, caveat, there are plenty of Christian denominations that have been doing this work for years. They typically are denominations of color, particularly Black communities engaged in education policy, you know, from the civil rights movement on. So I wanna make sure I acknowledge that history. But from a, a broad strokes contemporary space, I think a lot of us have been involved in policies around vouchers for private schools for mm-hmm. obvious reasons, right? Lots of us um, send our kids to private or Christian schools or have them in our churches. And so that's a self-interest we have. And also, you know, potentially a belief that parents should be able to be free to choose um, with, with government tax dollars where they send their children. So, but lots of lots of um, opportunity for us to engage in the the. Policy reform, and I think we shouldn't we shouldn't let those opportunities go by when the system is so broken and so not reflective of um, the kingdom of God for for all of His kids.
0: Yeah. So I have a couple of questions based on what you just said, um, and one is just that I feel like, especially in Christian circles, there's a tension that comes up between this idea of like individual responsibility and structural concerns. So are schools failing and our kids falling behind because of systemic racism and structural inequality? Or are they failing and schools failing, kids falling behind because individuals aren't doing what they should be doing? And I hear this debate come up in different language and in different ways. But uh, and I tend to think it's a false dichotomy, but I'd still love to hear just what you have to say uh, to Christians about the relationship between individual responsibility and this more uh, structural or systemic problem that we see in various ways, but especially in schools.
1: Mm-hmm. That's a great question. And It is like a constant ongoing um, discussion, in part because there are, there are truths on both sides, right? Mm-hmm. And, and I, I like in this, I'm sure is frustrating for some people when they talk to me about these issues. I tend to see the the gray in between, usually because things are not as stark as we want to kind of put people in a bucket. You believe this or that. And it's like, well, if only we're that simple, right? right. Now. Yeah. So so on this one, I think there is there is space and movement needed on both sides. I think when I look at what is going to move the needle more for a larger number of people, I look at it from a systems perspective, right? Again, that analogy I gave with we can tutor kids for the next 100 years, like tutor 20 kids um, to get them ready for kindergarten, right. or try to get quality preschool for an entire state that didn't have it. They had no funding for poor families pre- previously, and then it's like, oh, 100,000 kids now mm. get. There. And it doesn't make the policy perfect, right? All sorts of implementation challenges. We all know that, right? But it's it's a, a root. It's getting at the root. Um, is, is where, I, where I like to come at things from personally. So are there places where individual families may need more support? Of course, like, you know, we're both parents. Like we know that there's always, it feels like more we can do to support our own in this work. But I also recognize putting all of that responsibility on individual families. And it's usually parents, right? They get blamed. I hear this a lot. Well, if the parents cared more about education or the kids cared more X, wow. Y, and Z, be happening. And it's like, well, so let's try to put ourselves in the position of a family who um, is struggling to make ends meet, you know, whether it's a single two parent family, grandmama, auntie, whomever, if they're working, you know, two or three jobs, right, don't have paid time off to go up to school to like meet with the teacher at two o'clock in the afternoon, right, which is a privilege um, that a lot of families don't have like, let's start link- linking all of these systems together outside of school that are impacting an individual family's options and choices, right? And how is that impacting not how much they care, but what they're able to do and put into practice that fully reflects how much they actually do care. Because I've never met a parent who's like, I could care less if my kid graduates from high school. Like, <laughs> I mean, I haven't met that person. Yeah. So that's why for me, like, yes, We always want to support individuals, but we also have to look at not just the educational system that's impacting them and the institutional racism, all of those things, but also the other systems outside of school that are impacting their ability to kind of execute on all of the beliefs that they have about why education matters so much. I mean, I think we see that now in the time of COVID, like loud and clear, right? The fact that we all of a sudden had to start doing virtual learning and there were parents who did not have high speed um, internet and didn't have like laptops for their kids. Like millions of parents don't have that, right? Yeah. And now kids are going back to school if they can. Parents who have to, you know, whose kids' schools aren't opening because of you know spikes in COVID, and they have to stay home and do learning. If the child is seven and is on Zoom calls, but mom and dad drive a a, a bus, a city bus, and they have to go out to drive that bus to get the paycheck to pay the rent, like. Tell me how that's going to work, right? So it's like that, those are the types of dots that I hope people can continue to connect in our churches to realize like, oh, there's the there's system thing that actually matters too.
0: Yeah, I've um, actually, one of the things that has gotten me particularly engaged in education these days has been recognizing last March that my kids were able to go immediately onto Zoom for a couple of different reasons one they had been issued chromebooks by their schools so they were already familiar as were their teachers Two, we had multiple rooms in our home where we could spread out and each be on different devices. And it wasn't perfect. It's like, oh, we have an old laptop and sometimes Zoom crashes or somebody's on a phone. But nevertheless, they were able to do it. And I was so aware that tens of thousands of kids just in my home state of Connecticut were not able to keep learning. And it was like, well, whose fault is that? Like, it's certainly not the children's fault. Yes, I feel like this moment has just really, like been like a magnifying glass or a spotlight on the inequities that were already present, but has certainly drawn my attention even more to it. That said, one thing I wanted to ask you about. So I think the we're talking before this um, episode will actually air, uh, and it's the day before the final presidential debate. So I've watched mm-hmm. the first debate. The dumb drops. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Can't wait. Um, and the VP debate. But what I noticed in the two debates that have already happened and the one that's happening tomorrow, I looked up the topics. Like, education is not mentioned. I think Kamala Harris, like, made a reference to the fact that there were kids who were not learning, uh, but it was, like, a passing comment. And, again, I looked at the list of topics for tomorrow's debate, and education's not on the docket. So, especially in this moment, I'm just curious, do you have an opinion on, like, why our national leaders are not talking about education and reforming education and, like, actually helping to change the
1: system? Yeah. You know, it is it is tragic, right? Because I feel like we went through this moment right before schools were in the school year was supposed to begin when, like, that was, like, you know, the topic du jour, right? Everyone from, you know, the president of the United States on down, you know, had opinions on, you know, what schools should be doing and to open up or not. Um, and so we had this like little window where I was like, oh my gosh, it's actually coming front and center. But it was really only like a political sort of discussion, right? Mm-hmm. And kind of like political point scoring um, for for a national dialogue. So I think we're back to this place now where people are just kind of hunkering down and, you know, <laughs> it's just incredibly complicated and my theory is that no one actually knows what to really do about it, right? So that dilemma I gave, you know, a few mm. moments ago about the little child who has to go to school virtually, whose parents have to leave the house to work, like, right. I've asked that question in so many spaces of, like, policymakers, think tanks. I'm like, so has anyone figured out where that kid's going to, what that kid's going to do all day? I wouldn't want my seven-year-old old at home Zooming by herself, right? <laughs> like, right. that's unsafe, like, depressing, a whole host of things, Right. And it's one of these things where like no one sort of knows. And I almost feel like right now everyone recognizes that it is such a spiraling downward like challenge that has multiple layers that I almost feel like people have kind of given up in the public sphere even talking about it because I feel like we're almost resound or have almost given up on this idea that we can get it right this year um, in this moment and that we know we're all very clear that certain groups of kids are going to come out fine. You know, parents who have the ability to, you know, pay for private tutors or a pandemic pod or whatever, right? And, and no judgment on that, right? Like people are going to do what they're going to do for their kids. It's just that we, we know that the gaps are going to be wider. And I, I just have a sneaking suspicion that no one wants to talk about it for that reason. And oh, by the way, it's always like the left behind topic that no one wants to talk about in any presidential election here. And sadly, like this is this is another one. And it's, you know, we're just short-sighted, honestly, as a nation. Like we want to talk about the topic du jour and not realize like if we don't fix this particular problem, like we're losing like generations of kids mm-hmm. in our country, like stature and ability to be effective as a nation you know, it's, it's literally like, you know, as one of my friends says, it's like a national security issue, right? If we don't like, think about it globally, like if we don't fix this and have a completely like massive, you know, uneducated population of, of young people in this country, like we're going to have major problems. But again, we'd have to have the longitudinal view to really take that on. And we just historically haven't as a country.
0: Yeah, I, I, think that's all true where it's always been left behind and then we've got the current moment where it's like I really don't want to talk about that because it's just a hard and bad situation right now I want to back up a little bit and ask you just to describe what the expectations project actually does I realized I didn't ask you to um, elaborate on how your organization functions and what you're doing to really be uh, a game-changing force in this whole equation.
1: Yeah. Um, so we are the nation's largest network of faith-motivated education equity advocates, which is fun to be able to say after <laughs> laboring over this beloved organization since 2012. Yeah. That's amazing. Yeah. It's really exciting. So our work is to educate, equip, and then mobilize faith constituents, so people of faith around the country, to take tangible actions to hold elected officials accountable to push them for policy change on the issues that matter most for for equity for all kids. That sounds like a mouthful, but it really, when you boil it down, it is right now we have a network of about 50,000 individual people of faith who are doing all sorts of things that are advocacy actions. So emailing members of Congress or the state house or their school board on something they want to see changed, making phone calls, letter writing campaigns, petition signing, doing public comment, you know, used to be in person at school board meetings, now it's virtually, um, on pieces of legislation and issues. Mm -hmm. Um, And so that's sort of the action piece, right? And so those things might seem minuscule, but they actually add up into real change. Like any elected official, if they get, especially at the local level, a hundred people calling them about an issue, they're like, oh shoot, I guess I should pay attention to that. And so we identify um, places where there are relevant issues Um, or policies coming up that have the potential to be game changers. So we did a whole campaign in Indiana a few years ago on getting state funding for low-income families to have preschool, an issue I've mentioned a couple of times already, and there wasn't any. And so we believed, and other organizations did as well, that if we can rally people to keep speaking about this, and obviously our folks are talking about it from their, their faith and values perspective as well, that if we get the attention of the people that have to make the decisions and, you know, for lack of a better word, pester them enough um, and really help them see our perspective that laws and practices will change. And that did in Indiana. They um, passed the first ever um, piece of state legislation to allow low income families to access funding for preschool. And so it changed the game for tens of thousands of families. Right. Um, We're doing that on school discipline issues when we see, you know, black kids are four times as likely to get suspended from schools nationwide. And so we're digging into why is that the case and how do we flip that to have more restorative justice practices, which Mm -hmm. align very much to our beliefs as Christians. And so we are, you know, having our advocates are are taking action, you know, phone calls, emails, emails. Petitions, etc., um, to really shift the the conversation around that. So when policies come up for a vote, whether it's um, you know eliminating the the practice of suspending kindergartners and preschoolers, which is amazing to me that that actually happens, right. but, um, and putting in place funding and teacher um, training for restorative justice, which is helping kids like have still have consequences, but in a loving, like, let's restore the relationships and get to the root of why this child is misbehaving. That's very different than simply suspending them. And so that's the work that we do. It involves a lot of educating um, people on issues. So we do lots of trainings and now they're all, you know, webinars, of course. Um, We create um, small group Bible studies on various topics, prayer guides for congregations to so use sermon talking points for pastors, right, to get the education out there. And then we have these tangible ways that our constituents can get involved to really change what's happening in their local community. And, you know, just this past, since I guess the last like four or five months when COVID, um, we shifted a lot of our work to that that piece. We've had our constituents have taken over 64,000 individual actions in the last few months on a variety of education issues. And they've wow. seen, you know they've gotten the attention of their elected officials in just the way that we'd hope they would. It's very exciting. We have lots of power and voice. Let's use it.
0: Mm. And so if someone wants to get involved, would that be as an individual, as a church community? Like, what, what would that look like if someone's listening to this and wants to know, either broadly, like, I just want to get involved in changing education in America, what can I do? Or specifically, I want to get involved in the expectations project what would that look like?
1: Absolutely. So um, if you want to get involved with the Expectations Project, go to our website, expectations.org, and sign up for our email list. We don't spam you, I promise. <laughs> We're a small organization. You're not going to get 5,000 emails a week from us. But we will um, then get you connected to ways that you can take action in your local community. It's We make it as easy for you as possible, <laughs> because we know everyone's busy. But you can find a way to uh, you know attend. A webinar if you want to or read more about a policy and then take some very specific, fairly easy to do actions locally. So we encourage that as one step. We also have resources for congregations that want to learn more. I think I referenced, you know, small group Bible studies, which will mm-hmm. be virtual now, I'm sure for many congregations, ways for um, congregations to kind of self-assess how equity is happening in their local communities and then come to a conclusion on, you know, one of three issues, which one do they want to do more to educate their own congregation about. We're also happy to be um, a resource to talk that through. We do lots of, you know, quick phone calls and consultancies with congregations who are like, we want to do this. We're not sure what to do next. So that's part of what we do as well.
0: Yeah, that's awesome. Well, I will make sure that just that information gets into the show notes so that people can follow up because I've certainly found as I have become more engaged, even just in the past six months in issues around educational justice here in Connecticut, that really my knowledge was much broader than it was deep. So I knew a lot about kind of education in America. And it's like, well, what about education in your town, in your county in, you know, the local uh, places where you actually could make a difference. And certainly your congregation could make a difference. Because um, as much as I bemoan, like, I really wish that our national leaders were talking about and making reforms when it comes to education. the same time, it's on the local level, in terms of town by town and state by state, where a lot of that change and transformation really can happen. So thank you for yeah. being a leader in that.
1: No, that's exactly right. And I know, like, the national politics, you know, takes up a lot of oxygen, you know, it has for the last, you know, several years. But you're exactly right, you know. So even if things are happening at the national level, you know, that um, our constituents are, you know, sometimes frustrated about, you know, depending on the issue, we always try to pivot pull back. So that actually doesn't preclude us from looking at what's happening in our state, our city, our district, because it's honestly easier to move the needle because you're like a bigger fish in a smaller pond, right? Like a hundred people calling their state representative on an issue actually will get their attention because no they don't often get that type of, of attention. If a hundred people try to email the, you know, Secretary of Education or their senator in Congress, a lot harder to get their attention. You're gonna need like a thousand people, right? Or ten thousand, right, yeah. to get their attention. So like local politics matter and or I should say not even politics, local policies and decision makers matter.
0: Mm. Well, thank you so much for the work that you are doing. It's really exciting to hear about how that has grown and obviously to even get a sense of the thousands and tens of thousands of people who really do care about these issues. And I hope that just having had this conversation, there'll be a few more who get on board. Yeah, really grateful for all the work you do and for your time today.
1: Thank you. It's my pleasure. Thanks for um, having this conversation. I look forward to keeping the conversation going. And anyone who has, you know, questions or wants to connect to us, please feel free to do so. We're definitely want to be a resource for all who are interested.
0: All right. Will you tell us your website one more time? Yes. It's uh, expectations with an S dot org. Awesome. All right. Thanks, Nicole. And I look forward to talking to you again sometime. All right. Take care. Thanks so much for listening to Love is Stronger Than Fear. I do want to let you know about what's coming. We have a couple of really fantastic upcoming episodes, and I'm sure you don't want to miss them. I certainly don't. I'm going to be talking with Andy Crouch next week about love and power and vulnerability. It's going to come out. It's going to be released on Election Day, even though we will record that conversation beforehand. And I think it will be a helpful guide to what promises to be an intense day for our nation. So please join me for that. And then the following week, I'll be talking with David Bailey. Some of you may remember him from the first episode of this season. And we will be talking about what faithful love, justice, and reconciliation work looks like. And by then, we'll know who we will know something about this election. And we will be talking about what love and justice and reconciliation work looks like no matter what is happening in the political sphere. I tell you this for two reasons, to give you a sense of where we're headed, but also as a prompt. Uh, If you have not subscribed to this podcast, please do. Please share it with friends. Please rate it, review it. All of that will help more people become aware of what's going on here, because these are conversations for people who care about nuanced arguments, who care about compassion, who care about working together across dividing lines. And if you are a listener already, then I suspect you know more people who care about these things and who would benefit from these conversations, as I certainly do week after week. Thanks so much again for listening and for being here. And I do, as you go into your day today, hope and pray that you will carry with you the peace that comes from believing that love is stronger than fear.